To make a donation, visit biblicallycorrectpodcast.org slash donate. And if you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, and subscribe. Thank you for your support. So who is a Jew? Welcome to the Biblically Correct Podcast. Shalom, y'all. This is the Biblically Correct Podcast, teaching biblical correctness in a biblically incorrect world. My name is Kevin Jeffrey. I am a Jewish follower of the Messiah Yeshua, Jesus, and I love teaching the scriptures. Now, I have to be honest. As a Jewish person with two Jewish parents and four Jewish grandparents and a known fully Jewish genealogy going back several generations, who is a Jew seems like a kind of strange question to ask. I've known all my life that I'm Jewish, so the answer to the question is obvious to me. A Jew is someone who's Jewish, who has Jewish parents and Jewish grandparents and Jewish lineage. Jewishness is something you're born with. It's your ethnicity. It's self-evident. And there's nothing more or less to it than that. But apparently, there is more to it than that. Because there's actually a lot of confusion about how one determines who's Jewish who's not, and whether we can gain or lose that identity. So today I just want to quickly run down what the scriptures say about who is a Jew, and then address some of the questions that people have where determining Jewishness is concerned. All right? So let's start with the name Jew, which is derived from the name of the tribe of Judah. In Hebrew, it's Yehudi, which comes from Yehuda, Judah. And we first see this term being used in Scripture after the northern tribes of Israel have split off from the smaller southern kingdom of Judah about 500 years after the exodus from Egypt. The first occurrence of the word Jew in Scripture is in 2 Kings 16.6, which says, At that time, Ritzin, king of Aram, cleared out the Yehudim, the Jews, from Elat. We also see the word Jew often in the books of Nehemiah and Esther, and also in the prophecy of Zechariah 8.23, where Adonai says that in those days, 10 men from all languages of the nations will take hold on the kanaf of a man on the outer edge of his garment. They will take hold of a Yehudi, a Jew, saying, we will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So according to scripture, the name Jew is ascribed to those who are descended from the tribe or kingdom of Judah. Their physical lineage and ethnicity is of Judah. Now, where things start getting a little tricky is that the scriptures also tell us that there were those from other tribes of Israel who were also called Jews. We see this in Esther chapter 2, verse 5, which says, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, a Benjaminite. And we also see the same thing with Paul, who says in Acts 21, 39 and 23, I am a Jew. And in Romans 11, 1 and Philippians 3, 5, that he is of the tribe of Benjamin. So given that the tribe of Benjamin became part of the kingdom of Judah when Israel split, this additional identification makes sense. Yet we also see some evidence of remnants of the northern tribes who were taken into captivity by Assyria, becoming part of Judah as well. For example, Luke 2.36 mentions a prophetess named Anna from the tribe of Asher. And according to 2 Chronicles 30 and 31, there were some from the tribes of Israel who came to live in Judah 
before Judah's subsequent expulsion. These few would have avoided the destruction and dispersion of the rest of their fellow Israelites. So in simple terms, what this means is that the remnant of Israel's other tribes who came to live in Judah also identified as Jews. Yet it would be a mistake to simply see this as a matter of identification due to geography, as if they were considered Jews simply because they lived in the land of Judah. Because at least by the time of the first century, those whose known lineage was also of other tribes nevertheless considered themselves to be biological Jews. Paul, who wasn't born in Judah, but in Tarsus, plainly says this in Galatians 2.15, as it reads in the ESV, we ourselves are Jews by birth or by nature and not Gentile sinners. He's clearly juxtaposing biological ethnicity in this statement. So while those from other tribes still retain their distinction and heritage over multiple generations, they nevertheless became members of the house of Judah. And for all intents and purposes, all that remained of Israel was now collectively the Jews. This is why the term Jew and Israel are often used in the New Testament scriptures interchangeably. We see this in Matthew's writing, for example, where in Matthew 27, 37, he says that the inscription above Yeshua's head during his execution read, King of the Jews. Yet five verses later, the Jewish leadership is recorded as mockingly referring to Yeshua as the King of Israel. We also see this term swapping with Paul, as in Romans 9.24, where he says that God also called us of the Yehudim, the Jews, but then just seven verses later he says, What then will we say? That Gentiles who are not pursuing righteousness attain to righteousness, but Israel pursuing a Torah of righteousness, did not arrive at Torah. And of course, the entire context of the book of Romans and everything else Paul's written demonstrates that whether he says Jew or Israel in his contemporary context, he means the same thing. So while Judah's technically only one tribe of Israel among many, and in its purest form, a Jew would be descended only from that tribe, since those from the kingdom of Judah form the predominant remnant to emerge from foreign captivity, all ancient Israelis eventually came to be collectively known as Jews. So that's how the Bible identifies who is a Jew. How then does someone know whether or not he's actually Jewish? Well, as I've already indicated, most people who are Jewish know they're Jewish because their parents told them they're Jewish and their family and heritage and lineage and way of life all testify to that fact. But what about those who have only one Jewish parent or less than four Jewish grandparents? Are they still considered Jews? Well, in Judaism, you're considered a Jew as long as your mother is a Jew. The exception to this, of course, being if you confess belief in Yeshua. From the perspective of the modern state of Israel, for example, under the law of return, any Jew from around the world can become an automatic Israeli citizen. Yet I'm not considered a Jew in the land of Israel because Messianic Jews are said to have converted to Christianity. So even though my mom is Jewish, which halakhically makes me Jewish, as far as the state of Israel is concerned, I'm not a Jew and ineligible to make Aliyah. Nice, right? Anyway, so the reason Judaism traces Jewish lineage 
through the maternal line is apparently because while you may not always know the identity of the father due to infidelity or rape or some other such thing, you'll always know the identity of the mother because she's the one who gave birth to the child. The result of this approach to determining Jewishness, however, is that it makes paternal Jewishness, the Jewishness of the father, irrelevant, such that if a child's only Jewish parent is the father, the child isn't considered by Judaism to be Jewish. The Bible, on the other hand, which should be our only authority in this matter, traces Jewish lineage solely through the father's line in the Hebrew scriptures. Here's a typical genealogical passage from the book of Ruth, who was married to Boaz, yet she's not even mentioned here. Chapter 4, verses 21 and 22 say, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And we see the same paternal pattern in Matthew's version of the genealogy in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, the king. And we see this play out over and over again in the scriptures, demonstrating patrilineal descent, not matrilineal, as the sole determining factor. But that's not the end of the story. Interestingly, it's actually Paul who provides us with the necessary scriptural support for tracing Jewishness also through the mother. In Acts chapter 16, Paul's taking on Timothy as a traveling companion. And it says, beginning in verse 1, that a certain disciple was there by the name of Timothy, son of a believing Yehudi woman, a Jewish woman, but of a father, a Greek. Paul wanted this one to go with him, and having taken him, he circumcised him because of the Yehudim, the Jews, who are in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. So Timothy was Jewish only on his mother's side, and hadn't been circumcised according to the Torah. Yet before leaving with him, Paul had Timothy circumcised, precisely because he considered Timothy to be a Jew. This is especially meaningful given that Paul believed, as he wrote in 1 Corinthians 7.18, that if anyone's been called in uncircumcision, meaning if he's a Gentile, then he shouldn't get circumcised which is exactly how Paul handled it, for example, with Titus. So by circumcising Timothy, Paul was acknowledging and restoring Timothy's rightful lineage traced through his Jewish mother. So according to scripture, a person is a Jew, whether both his parents are Jewish, just his father, or just his mother. But what if a person's genealogy is a little more complicated than that? What if only one or two of your grandparents are Jewish? Or maybe you have just a single Jewish great-grandparent or a great-great-grandparent. Are you still a Jew? Well, according to Scripture, I can say with certainty that anyone who has at least one Jewish grandparent is biblically considered a Jew. Let's take a look again at that passage from Matthew, which is in the genealogy of Yeshua. It says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. So Rahab and Ruth are both notable Gentile women from Israel's history, featured prominently in the genealogy of Yeshua. 
Their presence here means that we have two generations in a row where Jewish men have not married Jewish wives. And yet, their descendants include not only David, the quintessential king of Judah, but Yeshua the Messiah, both of whom are undeniably Jews. So let's break this down to see how it works. Now, Salmon is, of course, Jewish, and he marries Rahab, a Gentile, from whom is born Boaz. This gives Boaz one Jewish parent, making Boaz Jewish. Boaz then marries Ruth, also a Gentile, from whom is born Obed. This also gives Obed one Jewish parent, Boaz, although genetically speaking, Boaz is half-Jewish, which makes Obed genetically a quarter-Jewish. So when we look then at Obed's grandparents, we see Salmon and Rahab on Boaz's side, a Jew and a Gentile, and two more Gentile grandparents on Ruth's side. This means that Obed has only one Jewish grandparent, though Obed is still considered Jewish given his progeny. Obed then presumably marries a Jewish wife, such that his son Jesse now has Boaz and Ruth as his grandparents on Obed's side and two Jewish grandparents on the other side, giving Jesse now three Jewish grandparents, though technically Jesse is about 63% genetically Jewish. The pattern repeats again, where Jesse marries a Jewish wife from whom is born David, increasing David's Jewish ethnicity to approximately 81%. Theoretically, it would then take seven generations from Obed of only Jewish marriage to produce children who are 99% genetically Jewish. So the long and the short of this is that according to the Bible, two consecutive generations of Jews can withstand intermarriage, and the children and grandchildren will continue to be considered Jews. Based on this scripture in Matthew, as long as you have at least one Jewish grandparent, you're definitely still a Jew. The question then is, what happens if there are more than two consecutive generations of intermarriage? What if you only have a single long-lost Jewish relative? Or if you get a Jewish hit on your DNA test? Or if you have an oral family history of hidden Jewish ancestry? Does any of that make you Jewish? Well, the scriptures don't directly answer that. Probably because Jews marrying Gentiles isn't supposed to be the norm. This is especially true given the Torah's prohibition in Deuteronomy 7.3 against intermarriage with those outside of Israel, yet making an exception for intermarriage within Israel for someone who's a sojourner, as in the case of Ruth. So while I can be a thousand percent sure that having at least one Jewish grandparent makes you Jewish, we simply don't have that same level of certainty where it comes to a long line of intermarriage, or just having a distant Jewish relative or a family tradition of lost Jewishness. And this is a huge problem, specifically for Messianic Jews who marry Christians. And I say this as one myself, because within just a few generations, we face the very real possibility that our great-grandchildren, through continued generations of intermarriage, might no longer be considered Jewish neither in the eyes of the Bible, nor in the eyes of God. And the problem is that if God has salvation plans for the world that require the persistence of a recognizable remnant of Messianic Jews, which he does, then we need to continue to be not only Messianic, 
but ethnically, biologically, and biblically Jewish. Because just as much as the Jewish Messiah, the eternal King of Israel, needed to retain his Jewish bloodline in order to qualify as Messiah, so do Messianic Jews of today need to retain theirs. This problem of gradual attrition of the Jewish line also exists in Judaism. Judaism's solution then, for those who even still care about preserving the Jewish people, has been to rely on conversion in the case of intermarriage. Conversion is the official process in which a Gentile learns about Judaism, demonstrates their commitment to the Jewish people and the Jewish faith, and performs the necessary rites and rituals as prescribed by the rabbi, synagogue, and denomination of Judaism that he's entering. Gentile men, if uncircumcised, would also undergo circumcision. As a result of the conversion process, a Gentile would then be considered and treated, at least within that specific Jewish denomination, as a bona fide Jew. Their children then would be considered fully Jewish, even though their genetics obviously hadn't changed. And so now things start to get pulled into a more metaphysical realm, where Jewishness is no longer based on physical lineage and bloodline at all, but on a community's subjective perception and a person's self-identification. Again, from a biblical perspective, how many generations can such a thing go on before those children are no longer really Jewish? That uncertainty is troubling. And what about conversion for a Gentile believer in Yeshua, whether they're marrying a Jew or not? Well, first of all, while the Torah prescribes circumcision for a Gentile sojourner in Israel, for one who joins himself and his household to the people of Israel, that circumcision allowed him to be treated as a native-born Israelite, but still didn't make him an actual Israelite or Jew. Circumcision was the sign that he was accepting Israel's covenant as his own, yet his identification within Israel remained as a sojourner, still minimally limited and distinguished from native-born Israelites, as found, for example, in Deuteronomy 14.21. Secondly, conversion is scripturally unprescribed and unnecessary, as indicated in Ezekiel 47.22. Sojourners who intermarry with Israelites and have children with them will receive a land inheritance because their children are Israelites. A conversion ritual wouldn't change that. And third, according to Paul, conversion for believers is expressly prohibited. We already saw earlier from 1 Corinthians 7.18 how Paul taught that Gentiles should not seek to become Jews through circumcision. He goes on to say in verses 19 and 20, the circumcision is nothing and the uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is a keeping of the commands of God each one in the calling in which he was called, in this let him remain. In other words, if you're a Jew, don't try to become a Gentile. And if you're a Gentile, don't try to become a Jew. Speaking of which, and this is the last topic I'll cover today, the question of who is a Jew is further complicated in Christianity by the prevalent idea that Christians are, quote, spiritual Jews. This incorrect belief is based on an out-of-context reading of Romans 2.28 and 29, which says, for example, in the ESV, For no one is a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. 
but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. So the way this is misread then is as if Paul's saying that natural-born Jews, those who are Jews physically and outwardly, are not really Jews. But Christians who have the circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit in Messiah are inwardly spiritual Jews or true Jews. Alternatively, while some Christians may not read this as if Paul's saying they've replaced Jewish people as the quote-unquote true Jews, many still see him as teaching that if you've been spiritually circumcised in your heart, then you're considered a spiritual Jew. And if we could separate these two verses from the surrounding context, that might all be true. But when we consider the whole of Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, then it becomes clear that Paul's speaking here not to Gentile believers at all, but specifically to Jewish believers. In chapters 1 and 2, he's already repeatedly compared and contrasted Jews and Greeks several times. Not to mention affirming circumcision in chapter 3, verse 1, as actual, literal circumcision, which would contradict the incorrect reading that circumcision is not outward in the flesh. Additionally, it's self-defeating and destructive to the common sense of language to take no one is a Jew who is one outwardly as meaning real Jews aren't real Jews, especially given what we've already seen in Galatians 2.15, which plainly says the opposite. We ourselves are Jews by birth or by nature. To be a Jew in its most basic terms, then, is to be physically and ethnically Jewish. You can't actually be a Jew without that. A better translation of this passage, then, is found in the MJLT, which clears things up considerably. Beginning back in verse 25, Paul says to his Jewish audience, For circumcision indeed benefits you if you practice Torah. But if you are a sidestepper of Torah, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Verse 28, For one is not Yehudi, Jewish, who is only so outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is only outward in the flesh. But one is Yehudi, who is also so inwardly, and whose circumcision is also of the heart, in the Ruach, in the Spirit. To Paul's Jewish audience then, he's chastising them for their pride in their Jewishness in their physical circumcision and their faulty Torah-keeping. And he's saying that despite any real value that there is in your circumcision, despite any Torah-keeping and outward Jewishness in your flesh, you still need the circumcision of the heart in the spirit of Messiah. You, Jewish believer, have no place to be prideful because all those outward things still need to become an inward reality. You need to be a Jew, not only outwardly, but also inwardly. The fulfillment of your true Jewishness comes also by the spiritual circumcision of your heart through Yeshua. So not only does this passage not speak to the Jewishness of Gentiles whatsoever, but it turns the anti-Messianic concept that Jewish believers in Yeshua are no longer Jews, but Christians on its head. Because if these verses call anyone's Jewishness into question, it's Jews who put their faith in Judaism, not Jesus. What Paul's saying here is that believing in Yeshua is not only not 
anti-Jewish, but makes a Jew more Jewish than he ever was before. Who is a Jew is a vital question to answer because it helps to identify the unique people whom God promised to always preserve as a testimony to his existence and through whom he will bring salvation to the world. Knowing the answer to who is a Jew also helps to direct our steps, whether we're Jew or Gentile, and informs an important part of our identity and function in the body of Messiah. For Jews in Yeshua who know we're Jews, the answer to the question attests to our uncommonness in the world. It sets us apart, but also reminds us of our weighty responsibility to the nations. For Jews in Yeshua whose heritage has been obscured from them, it aids in the restoration of your birthright as sons and daughters of Israel and strengthens our numbers and our faith. And for Gentile believers in Yeshua, who may otherwise be tempted to covet Jewishness or are confused about why the scriptures continue to make distinctions for Jews, it helps to affirm your birthright as the recipients of the blessings of Israel and keeps you strong in your identity as fellow citizens with Jewish believers in the household of God. So if you're a Jewish believer in Yeshua, embrace it because it's an essential part of who you are in him. And if you've been hiding or downplaying your Jewishness, realize that that's wrong. Learn to accept it and discover how God expects you to live in that Jewishness according to the scriptures. And if you're not Jewish, embrace that identity as well, having complete confidence to remain in that calling. And if you have reason to think you might be Jewish, but don't really know for sure, go ahead and try to find out. Talk to your family, search your genealogy, do that DNA test, because frankly, we need all the Jews we can get. Just keep in mind that distant Jewishness doesn't necessarily make you a Jew. And as wrong as it is for a Jew to hide a Jewishness he has, it's equally as wrong to claim a Jewishness that you don't. In Zechariah 8, and 23, again, the prophet says that one day, many peoples and mighty nations will come in to seek Adonai Tsevaot in Yerushalayim and to appease the face of Adonai. This is what Adonai Tsevaot says. In those days, ten men from all languages of the nations will take hold on the kanaf of a man, a Jew, saying, We will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. And let's also not forget the words of the Master Yeshua himself in Yochanan, John 4.22, Salvation is of the Jews. We'd all do well to remember that what's most important isn't Jewishness, but knowing and living by the truth. Because in some ways, who is a Jew doesn't matter at all. But in other ways, as the scripture says, it means everything in the world. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Biblically Correct Podcast. If you like this episode and want to see us make more, then we need your help. Visit our website at biblicallycorrectpodcast.org to support the work of Perfect Word Ministries and MJMI with your much-needed donations. 
And of course, don't forget to like, share, comment, subscribe, and ring the bell to receive notifications whenever a new episode is posted. If you have any questions about this teaching, or if there are any other topics you'd like to see me cover, leave me a comment or shoot me an email at kevin at perfectword.org. That's kevin at perfectword.org. Until next time, remember that every scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for refuting, for setting a right, and for instruction that is in righteousness, so that the man of God may be fully equipped, having been completed for every good act. Shalom. Shalom.